Good morning. My name is Nikki, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. Look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Matt. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless somehow you believed in it for nothing. I passed on to you as the most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. Most of them are still alive to this day, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, as if I were born at the wrong time. I'm the least important of the apostles. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I harassed God's church. I am what I am by God's grace, and God's grace hasn't been for nothing. In fact, I have worked harder than all the others. That is, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that is with me. So then, whether you heard the message from me or them, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Brooke. Thanks for standing for the gospel reading found in John eleven twenty-one to 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, So here we are near the end of Paul's letter to the, the church in Corinth. And as we've been walking through this letter, we've been asking ourselves, what does it mean to be the people of God in a city like Corinth. And again, in Paul's day, Corinth was this booming city, uh, lots of uh, commercial success. And so you had people with, mo- with money and with wealth, but you also had uh, the, the, the leftovers of a military dominance because you had retired um, uh, soldiers that were, were given citizenship and, and asked, uh, b- being allowed to settle in Corinth as kind of a thank you for their service. 
But then you also had a very sexualized culture, and we talked about the two temples that dominated uh, the scene. We Aphrodite's temple with a thousand different prostitutes, and you had Apollo's temple. And so there was definitely this, um, this culture that was, let's, let's put it lightly here, this culture that was hostile toward the gospel, a culture in which the gospel would have been very challenging and very maybe even contradictory, certainly contradictory on certain points. And Paul's risk here is saying, look, if a church can be planted in the midst of this kind of city, perhaps the gospel really can't be stopped. Perhaps a church can flourish in any kind of city. Fast forward a couple thousand years, I think we say amen. And we take heart in this, that we, the, the, the flourishing of a church is not contingent on culture being friendly to Christians. But the flourishing of a church is contingent to the people of God cooperating with the Spirit of God in its midst. Amen? I'll say that again. The flourishing of the church is not contingent on the host culture being friendly to it. It's really not. The flourishing of the church is contingent on the Spirit of God working in that church and that congregation cooperating with Him. And so today as we come near the end, we recognize that Paul is doing something that is perhaps like bookends to his letter. He opened up, if you remember in the first chapter, he opened up talking about Christ and Christ crucified. He talks about the cross and the scandal of the cross, scandalon of the cross, this offensive thing. Crucifixion in the first century was something that you would not ever bring up at a dinner conversation. And here's Paul bringing it up as people gather for church. And he's saying this is how unimaginable it is that God came, that Jesus came and was crucified, not for the lovely and the educated and the elite and the successful, but for the weak. And he opened up his letter by saying, look, if the foolishness of the gospel is Christ crucified, then the power of the gospel is Christ resurrected. And so chapter 15, Paul begins to focus on resurrection, and you can almost see there's a little bookend theme that he's doing. He starts by saying, God became weak so that even the weakest of the weak can be saved, the foolishness of the cross. But look, God raised Jesus from the dead so that none of us shall remain dead in our sins, so that death will no longer be the end. Now, as beautiful as all this sounds, if we're honest, many of us think of resurrection and we don't really know what to do with resurrection. Resurrection feels like, well, isn't this sort of the proof text for atonement theory? So we have whatever atonement theory you have, Jesus, you know, and then resurrection is just sort of a, hey, that's really true, you know? Or maybe resurrection was kind of a bonus thing. So for a lot of us, Good Friday services are triumphant and happy not so much ours, if you went to ours, and because we're trying to say, no, there is really something about this lowest of the low here in Good Friday that resurrection belongs together with. But if we're left without that, we say, well, why, why does, what does resurrection mean? And maybe in our struggle to understand it, we say, well, well maybe resurrection is kind of this bonus kind of the, the whipped cream on top of the pie jesus died for our sins that's the whole good news and then resurrection sort of like <laughs> and the grave couldn't hold him down or does resurrection mean something more profound than that this morning i want us just to talk about what the resurrection means for our faith and for our future 
what it means for our faith and what it means for our future. Along the way, we'll have a little excursus here on our bodies and how Paul is saying the gospel says something very different about our bodies than what the Greeks were used to thinking about. Turn with me to verse 13 in, in, in chapter 15. We heard the first 11 verses being read in the New Testament reading. Verse 13 here, Paul says, uh, it's almost an answer to their question, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. You remember during our Lent series on lament, we put this emphasis here on how it's God who raised Christ. And Paul's saying, look, if you, can't, if, if, if you don't believe that, you're missing some, we're misrepresenting God. But if we can catch that God has raised Christ, we're seeing a very faithful God. And then he says, for if dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, he's repeating his point. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we of all people are to be pitied. I want to stop there. What does resurrection mean for our faith? Paul starts by saying the reverse, by saying, well, if it didn't happen, what it means for our faith is it means our faith was futile. It means we've been misrepresenting God. It means your faith has all been in vain. And then, he's, and then in case someone's saying, oh, but it helped me live a good life. You know, kind of the existentialism of, I don't know if Jesus really was raised from the dead, but believing that he, did, that he was makes me a better person. And Paul says, if only for this life, we should be pitied. So at worst case, our faith was futile. At, at best case, you lived a good life, but you should be pitied because it was only for this life. I think there's a danger in the... In, 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 the um, kind of the, the, the enlightenment existentialism that says, uh, I don't know if I really want to take the resurrection seriously, but the motif of resurrection really makes me want to love people. And I know some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Others of you, this really resonates. Because I was sitting with a young man recently who said that to me. He said, I love the motif in the gospel of death and resurrection, sacrifice and vindication. It's just so beautiful. I don't know if, I, if it really happened or not, but it's just beautiful. And that's the way I want to live my life. And that's really beautiful. But Paul says, if that's it, we are to be pitied. Because there's something more. But I'll tell you, sometimes the terrifying feeling of your faith being futile leads us to swing to this other place, and it's this place of certainty. So if doubt is terrifying to us, what we do to compensate for our fear of doubt, because, oh my goodness, if I really doubt, then my whole faith, yeah. what we do then is we swing to this other place of certainty. Okay, I am certain, I can prove it. I've got, I've got 10 proofs of the resurrection. You know, these things always surface around Easter. And I will say this, there are actually some very thoughtful responses that, we, that are good for us not to inflict on someone else. I, I don't think the purpose of apologetics is to beat someone else over the head. It's to help us think through this, okay? 
I think there are some very helpful things to recognize that when someone says, oh, resurrection myths, weren't there first century resurrection myths? And to say, actually, here's how the gospel accounts of resurrection are very different from early resurrection myths. And it's important to to know that the gospel writers are describing something that there has been no category prior to it. And there's simple things like Jesus appearing and then disappearing, like he's eating with the guys from Emmaus on the road to Emmaus, and then he disappears from their eyes. That's weird. He's eating, so he's got a physical body, but then he can also sort of say, see ya. (laughs) And then he appears in a locked room, and then he says, but don't be afraid. And you're like, well, if you stop appearing in locked rooms and freaking me out, I wouldn't be afraid. But you get the sense that these gospel writers are describing something for which they don't have a pre-existing category. So it, it can be helpful to realize, okay, resurrection is different than early first century resurrection myths. It's different than resuscitation. It's different than ghost sightings. That's all very, very, very helpful. That's good. But I want to caution you in all this. In your terror of doubt, the answer is not to cling to certainty and to say, okay, I know it. I can prove it. I can prove it. I can prove it. The resurrection happened. I can prove it. These are the reasons, and this is why, and this is why I'm so confident. And now I never have to fear that my faith will be futile. Do you know what Paul says is the, is the response to this feeling of doubt? I mean, imagine, I imagine that these Corinthian Christians saying, Paul, you're talking to us about something that sounds crazy. You know that, right? We don't have any category in philosophy for this kind of bodily resurrection. And so can we leave that part out? Can we just sort of hypothetically believe in it and be good people? And Paul says, you can't leave that out. But I understand why it's hard for you to grasp. I mean, you're over here in Corinth. All of this stuff happened over in Jerusalem. You, you, you don't, how do you know that it's true? And Paul responds not with, with the gift of certainty, but with a call to humility. Why do I say that from this text? Because remember the New Testament reading, he's, basically Paul says this, everything I have believed, I have received. And he uses that word received a couple times. He says the faith that you have received. And then he says, actually, I passed this on to you, but the truth is I received it. 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest New Testament documents we have. Sometimes it's often said, oh, you, well, you know the gospel accounts. That was written like, you know, decades after Jesus. That's true. But 1 Corinthians was. 1 Corinthians was written pretty early on. And so Paul makes it a point to mention all these eyewitnesses. Why? Because lots of these folks were probably still living. But his point is not to give proofs for the resurrection. His point is to say, you know what? This whole posture of faith is a posture of humility, of saying I am receiving something, not proving something. I'm receiving something. What I told my friend as we were having uh, coffee, as I said, I, I appreciate that you love the narrative of crucifixion and resurrection so much. But I have to tell you that the gospel is not something that we say, I like this because I resonate with this. The gospel is something we say, I believe this because I have received this. In other words, we don't say, oh yeah, yeah, I perceive, I perceive 
a crucifixion and resurrection motif in life, so I like that. No, we don't perceive the gospel, we receive the gospel. And Paul's saying, look, I received this, I am passing on that which I also received. Christ died for our sins. And he goes on and he gives this creedal formula that had been already going in these years after Christ's death and resurrection. Do you know, ultimately, all of us sit here, not because we've proven our faith, but we sit here because we are humbly saying, I receive the faith of our fathers and mothers that has been passed on to us. Sometimes people in the West feel this shame of like, maybe I'm just a Christian because my parents were. You know, there's no shame in that. Thank God you're a Christian because your parents were. Thank God that from Paul and on and on it went, that the faith was passed on all of these centuries and it made it to you. Thank God for that. Don't, don't, don't disclaim it because of that. Say, thank you, God, that I have been able to receive this same faith. This is the reason when we say the Nicene Creed, we say we believe. We say we believe because sometimes the I is not strong enough. Sometimes you're here and you say, I believe. I don't know if I believe. My ability to believe today is lower than I want it to be. I don't know if I believe. But knowing there's a we really helps. Knowing that this we includes all of these saints going all the way back to Paul, who himself says there were eyewitnesses before him and includes the women at the tomb. I mean, all of these things, all of a sudden you realize I'm part of that, we, and you say, okay, thank you, God. I'll take the posture of humility here and say, okay, there's no I in I believe, I can prove, I have come to faith, I recognize, I have, we. You see in one sense that we do great... (laughs) We're, we're, we're on the wrong footing when we speak of faith with arrogance and certainty. <laughs> we're on much better ground when we speak of faith with the humility that says, I have received this. I, I'm not here to argue or prove or I've, I've received this. Now I'm passing it on. And, Paul, and like Paul, you say, I pray that you receive this and believe this. You know, parents, you think about this. I've got to convince my... No, I'm passing this on, and I pray that you will receive this too. But I have, that which I have believed, I have received. The posture becomes humility. The answer for our doubt is not certainty, but humility. Paul goes on through this chapter, and he starts talking about the question of what does resurrection look like, and what does it mean for our bodies, and... I'm not going to read this, but this, there's this whole section from verse 35 all the way down to 49. I had slides for it. We'll, we'll skip that for now, just be, for time's sake. But he starts talking about the natural body. Maybe I'll read a few phrases. Okay, all right, we've got to do this. <laughs> verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Paul's trying to use a few metaphors here, and he's using the one of sowing and reaping from farming. And then he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now here's the key verse. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, speaking of Adam, Adam, dirt, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, speaking here of Jesus. Very often we don't talk about resurrection of the bodies, but you know, and we will say the creed later in, in the sermon today, the last, one of the last lines of the creed says, but we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now, friends, let me be clear. This is not heaven. That is not heaven. When the creed says we look for the resurrection of the dead, that's not heaven. So, kindly, heaven is for real, but it's not the end. Yeah, heaven's for real, but it's not the point. It's not even the future. The final words of the creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. There's something beyond that. And we don't talk about this because we say, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like. What is a resurrected body? I mean, does it mean I can have wings? Is it like we'll become X-Men? I mean, what, what is this? You know? <laughs> and Paul's, it, there's a mystery to this, okay? And Paul's best clue is to say, it's going to be like Jesus' resurrected body. That's the best clue we have. Now, if we work with that, we can, we can shade in a little bit of this stuff. And we can say, okay, wait, wait. Did Jesus have an abandoned, decaying body in the tomb, and then God gave him a new souped-up one? Or did God use the existing body and transform it? Which one? The existing body. So... So it's not something new, it's this one reconstituted, re-put together with something, something's the same and something's different, able to eat and drink and laugh and sort of be recognized, but also with different kinds, with, without the limitations. You're like, this is, I, I don't know how to fully grasp this. Now, why does this matter? Just a little short word or two here about, but why, why, would, why would Paul talk about this? Early, early Greek philosophy separated the body from the soul. This is, this is Plato stuff. This is centuries before uh, first century Corinth. And the Greeks said, look, body and soul are separate, and this is what that means. It means the body is bad or at, at best irrelevant, but the soul and the spirit, this is what really matters. And so from this, that, the word for that view is Gnosticism. And the, from that Gnosticism, you had kind of two camps in Greek philosophy. You had the Epicureans who said, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, we'll die. <laughs> sort of the view that says, look, if the body doesn't matter, then party up in the body. Who cares? Eat whatever you want, have sex with whoever you want, because the body doesn't matter as long as you're nourishing your soul. That sounds like some Christians I know. Then the Stoics were the other camp, and the Stoics said, the body doesn't matter, so just grin and bear it. Like, whatever is happening here, just kind of go through it. Death will be your freedom. And once you die, that's when your spirit will fly away. Uh-oh, that sounds like a lot of Christians. I'll fly away, oh glory. This old world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. 
That's not the gospel. That's Gnosticism. What? You mean to say that my soul is like a bird in a cage waiting to be freed? That that's not the, that that's not the gospel. The gospel is that when God made the world and called it good, he meant it. The gospel is that when Jesus says, I am, when, when Peter says Jesus will return and bring about the restoration of all things, he means all things. He means the physical, the material, all of it put back together again. So all of a sudden, we as Christians begin to realize, wait a minute, matter matters. The material world matters. We need not be the kind of Christians that say, I like prayer meetings, but I hate uh, hiking. Oh, I don't want to go to, I don't like, I don't want, I mean, nature, who needs that? I just need another prayer meeting. There's no division between the two. Can we see that in Christ, the spiritual and the physical are coming back together again? And actually, there's this whole wonderful discussion that N.T. Wright does about the Greek words for the, 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 imper- the perishable body and the imperishable body. And he's saying, essentially what it is, is the perishable body is a body energized by a temporary engine. But the spiritual body is that body being energized and remade by a new kind of engine. Now, we don't have metaphors for this. But it's a little bit like when Iron Man gives himself that new, you know, core. You know, all of a sudden, his physical body is like part cyborg and part, you know. Not, okay, it's not like that. But <laughs> we don't have a metaphor for this. But imagine what happens when the Holy Spirit becomes the, the one who energizes and remakes your bodies. Wow. Now that's hope. So what the resurrection means for our faith, and now what the resurrection means for our future. I tell you, if the first part of this chapter makes us come face to face with our doubt and leaves us with humility, I think the last part of this chapter makes us come face to face with our fear. And says, what does the resurrection mean for your future, but really for your fear? Because if you think about it, all of the fears that we have in this life, they do in some ways point to death, but they actually point beyond death. They make us, we fear death because we fear that our life was nothing, that it will be over. Maybe we fear death because we fear meeting God after this and saying, God, was that any good? Did this life, I mean, what do you say about me? Maybe we fear death because it means a certain kind of reality sinking in. And Paul says in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. It is very interesting that the New Testament talks about this middle period here before as we wait for the resurrection of the dead, uses the word sleep a lot, some sort of rest with Jesus. He says, but that's not the, all, the end. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will shout, sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For the imperishable body must put on the 
for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, it gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jason introduced me to this poem that John Piper wrote. It's, I can't quote it, but it says something like he says, he's writing, he says, oh, death, where is your sting? And death's reply is, it's your sin. He says, no, I know what your sting is, but where is it? And death sort of admits that the sting, which is your sin, is there on the cross. <laughs> Not death, what is your sting? I, I, Paul tells me what your sting is, death. It's sin. But where is it? Is it on me? No. Where is it, death? Oh, it's there, is it? Oh, okay. That's where the sting went. It's pretty remarkable when you think of this. The fear about our future is so connected to the fear about our own sin. Maybe the, you fear death because you think, well, what have I really done with my life? Or maybe you fear death because you go, well, what am I going to say before the Lord? And maybe you fear death because you say, I, 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 what is beyond it? What is the future? Will I be loved? Will I be saved? And Paul says, listen, the resurrection means that death sting, your sin is forever on the cross. And while it stays on the cross, you are raised with Christ. While your sin remains dead, you become alive. And so the last word on you becomes the pronouncement of life, not death. What does resurrection mean for your future? It means there's nothing really to fear. Am I saying you're going to live a life of cheerfulness and optimism? No, optimism is a cheap substitute for hope. When we haven't really let the hope of the gospel get into our hearts, the best we can do is optimism. Oh, I think it's going to be okay. Things are going to get better. I'm sure you'll get another job. <laughs> I hope. That, that, that's optimism. And you have no basis for saying that. But hope, now hope is different. Hope does not disappoint. Why? Because God demonstrated his love for us in this. That's all Romans 5. Hope doesn't disappoint because Jesus was raised from the dead. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, which is what we receive and believe, it means our sin will ever stay there and with it our ultimate fears and we can say, all right, God, I don't know what the short-term futures hold, but I do know that what is waiting for me is the fullness of life itself. Not an escape from the body, not a I'll fly away from this old world, no, but, but a fullness of life. This is what awaits all who are in Christ. The resurrection means there's nothing really to fear.
you're here this morning and you've been trying to carry the weight, either the weight of belief, I've got to carry the weight of belief on myself. So many people I talk to have somehow believed the lie of the enlightenment, which is I need to verify this before I can declare this as true. That's the lie of the enlightenment. That says, if you can't verify it, then, whoa, how do you know? And, and Descartes said, well, at least I'll start with me because I can verify myself, so I think, therefore, I am, and let's start to work our way from there. And Paul says, can we go pre-modern here, not post-modern? Can we go pre-modern and just say, actually, I believe because I've received. And everyone around you says, what? You foolish persons. I know, I know. First Corinthians began reminding me how foolish the gospel is. I, I know. You're not going to defend the faith. I, I, you know what? I've tried to do that, and that burden is too heavy for me. So I'm going to find refuge in the great we of the church and say we believe in God the Father. Others of you, you're carrying the heavy burden of your own future, thinking that you are responsible to give yourself a good future. I've got to work harder. I've got to do better. If I could just give my life to more ministries, if I could just do more things, then I'll have more crowns, more mansions, more whatevers. What a twisted way to think about the future. What a twisted way. Some people say that's what it means to have, live with eternity in mind, to say I've got to be manic. What? What about the view of eternity that says, this is the good future and it all hinges on the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. So lean into that. (laughs) Someone gave the illustration this week of a child on a swing. Sometimes you got to lean back and kick forward. And so we lean back into the, the creed and the church and say, I, we have received and we kick forward and we say, and this is our future. This is where my faith comes from, and this is where the future that God has in store for us. It's bright, it's good, it's life in its fullness. It's everything put back together again. And so we lean back and kick forward and lean back and kick forward, and we say, this is how we live. Free like a child on a swing. Free of the burden of saying, I've got to prove my faith. And free of the burden of saying, I've got to make my future sure. Paul says, Corinthians, let me tell you, I'm about to leave, but your faith doesn't rest on me. Your faith doesn't rest on you. Your faith rests on the beautiful, beautiful statement that God raised Jesus from the dead. Amen?